As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm pleased to introduce you to Steve Fretson. After surviving a near-death experience in a small plane crash in 1996, that's the year I graduated college, Steve Fretzen vowed to turn each day into an extraordinary experience. Today, he's one of the most respected business leaders and advisors on sales effectiveness. Steve has transformed thousands of sales professionals, entrepreneurs, and professional service practitioners into business development stars through his proprietary system of sales-free selling. And I have to know more about that from my other life. Uh, here today to talk about that and so much more is Steve Fretzen. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Steve. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Steve, I always ask everyone the same question uh, to, to begin these uh, conversations, which is, uh, Steve, where does your story begin? You know, there's probably a dozen answers that I could give you to that. But the one that popped into my head right away was you just, you know, being an underachiever, um, you know, back in the day when we were kids, we didn't have ADHD. That was not a thing. And I'm not saying I'm diagnosed, although I think I'm self-diagnosed as adult ADHD, but I think I was just called stupid and lazy. And that was kind of like my childhood. I don't know if you, <laughs> but it, you know, I, my father's a, a, a very hardworking lawyer who overachieved, grew up in the projects, had to, you know, had to, you know, claw and save and work hard to get everything that he achieved in his life a total self-starter. And he kept asking me the same question in junior high and high school and even through college, when are you going to get serious and get your life together and start, you know, taking your grades seriously? And when are you going to, you know, you know, make, you know, make things happen or whatever. And I just said, dad, I'm, I'm just a kid. I've got the rest of my life to do that. And I just kind of pushed it down the road, kicked the can down the road a little bit. And, uh, and I, you know, I don't know if that's, if that's, that's kind of the start of things, but there's a point in my life where things changed and a number of different points in my life where things changed, but um, definitely in 96 with the plane crash, we can get into that, but it's, 
that's one of those, those moments where you realize, holy crap, you really do only get one shot at this thing. And while having fun is, is a big part of life and I recommend it highly, uh, there's also things that we have to take very seriously because we don't want to live with regret and, and wondering what things could have been like if we had been more serious or had been more, uh, more impactful in, in the time we have here. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about your dad, you know, asking you when you're going to get serious, I heard Dean Wormer's voice in my head from Animal House <laughs> saying to Bluto, you know, fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Yeah, not saying yeah. that you're fat, drunk, or stupid. Um, no, but I did. I did once park, uh, not on the driveway at home, but I parked on the lawn, and he was uh, questioning me one one morning why I parked on the lawn, and I didn't have a good answer for him. Uh, and then, and I didn't remember from the night drinking before. So there's some, some bad high school stuff that, uh, college stuff that, uh, that went down, but, uh, I think we've all had that, but it, but, but yeah, I, I totally relate to the whole <laughs> blue Towski, uh, type of syndrome, you know, zero point zero right on the money with it. Exactly. <laughs> I think actually my GPA in my, my second semester freshman year, at not a great school. I went to Illinois State, which which now is a much better school than back in the 80s. But I think I got a 169 was my GPA, my sophomore, my second semester freshman year. And I think I got a notice saying, if you don't get that up, you're you're not going to be here next year. So I think yeah. that was that, you know, one of those many wake up calls to uh, to uh, not taking things seriously. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did relatively well in college, but my second semester freshman year, uh, I, I pledged a fraternity and uh, my grades were not up to par from my mother's liking. And uh, she yeah. had a little sit down with me telling me to shape up or, or ship out, basically. <laughs> and then next semester, I you know rallied back with a 4.0 and you know, all, all you go. was good after that. But um, well, tell me, I mean, what were you studying in college um, at, at the time when you were getting a 169 or were you not studying at all? I honestly, I remember like, yeah, I joined a fraternity and it was like just about every night from the time my classes end until about one in the morning, I was just partying and then going to sleep, waking up and going to classes. So I don't think there was studying. Um, I barely made it to class. I think I just like stared at the cute girl in front of me the whole time. Like it was not, my mind was not on these boring classes that had nothing to do with my life or that had no interest to me. I think it was business administration. So economics okay. and math and, you know, a bunch of stuff that I just could care less about at the time. So, you know, I worry about, you know, our future and sending my kid to college. I know you've got three <laughs> in there now, but like, you know, I don't really feel like I learned much in college. I really feel like it was an opportunity for me to party and have a good time. And, and, and maybe I had to learn some growing up because I was on my own and I had to, you know, I, again, never asked my dad for money. So I, you know, I had to, I had to, you know, take on part-time jobs and stuff while I was in school to just make ends meet. Cause I wanted to have my beer tab covered. Mm -hmm. But, well, uh, I mean, you, you eventually went to law school, it seems, right? I didn't. I mean, I'm look, not a lawyer. Oh, you're not? Oh, interesting. I'm not a lawyer. I see that be that lawyer with uh, with Fredson on top yeah, there. But that's another um, part of my a part of my adventure uh, I, I'm happy to get into. But uh, yeah, my father's a lawyer. I had zero interest in the law, zero interest in working with lawyers, talking with lawyers, being involved with lawyers, because my childhood growing up was being on the cross by my father, the litigator who would, who would ask me a hundred questions when I just wanted to get out of the room. <laughs> so there's that redirect your honor. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, he just, he just was really, even now, like, I just want to have a quick, my dad's 87. He lives down in Florida. I just want to have like a 10 minute dad. How you doing? You okay? What's going on? You're not falling down and you know, so much anymore. He, him and his wife fall down all the time. It's horrible. 
Um, and he'll start asking me about my son or about my job, about whatever. And it just never ends. And I'm like, dad, I got to go. Like, it's just, he just <laughs> doesn't stop asking questions, which is beautiful in some ways and other ways, you know, it's, it's, it, I just, look, I gotta go. I'm in the, I'm sitting in the garage now, 10 minutes. So I'm, I'm, I'm last, last week, I'm down in Florida visiting my parents uh, who are 89 and 88. And we go out to dinner with all of their friends. And my father, you know, he doesn't like, he has conversations as if he's still running sales for American Express. Like he, he just does not turn it off. I was listening to him talk to a, a woman at, at Publix, um, you know, large grocery store chain down in the sure. Southeast. And he's calling because he needs to order a dozen and a half cannolis. And you would think he's putting together the biggest deal of his life talking yeah. to this woman in a bakery in Publix. I mean, it's like, I think, but that's the stuff that keeps, you know, old, older, I shouldn't say old, older, like previously very type A driven, you know, alpha men alive is just kind of kind of tapping back into that mojo that they had, you know, back in the day. Yeah, I don't know that my, my father's lost a lot of that mojo. I think he spends a couple hours a day playing solitaire the rest of the day. Uh, books on tape, just listening to books, reading books. He, he just sits on his lanai, hopes to see a dolphin. I think he's only seen a few this this uh, this uh, year because uh, he's so he's down in Marco Island on the west side mm-hmm. through the winter, and he's coming back I think in a week or two. Um, and so then we'll we'll get our our fill with him. But uh, he loves it down there. He loves the heat. I can't yeah. handle the heat. He loves the heat. Yeah. Well, you know, once you get older, you know, seventy five seems cold. Like I stay I stay in my parents' place. Um, they keep the, the air conditioning is at like 78 degrees. Yeah. And it's like yeah. sleeping in a Bikram yoga studio. Like it's, I, it's the it's, Seinfeld. It's the Seinfeld episode, the Del exactly Boca Vista, you know, exactly the heat's up, you're sitting on the couch, you're sleeping on the couch with the bar in the back. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's that whole thing again. And I'm, I'm going in and touching the thermostat that I get yelled at. It's like, Oh, you get yelled at. Oh yeah. yeah. The only, the only thing missing is the pen that writes upside down. I mean, that's the only <laughs> thing missing in my parents' place. Yeah. Um, well, I do want to talk about what happened in 96. Um, so, yeah. it, cause there seems like a, a pre post going on there. So kind of walk me through what your life was like before, um, you know, the, this big event and tell me about the event and then tell me how life has changed. Well, a couple things. So, you know, one is that uh, when I, when I was graduating high school in that ballpark, my mom had a stroke a couple strokes actually. And she uh, became a paraplegic at 56 years old and was a paraplegic for, and lived for 13 years. And so, you know, all my friends had their, you know, their parents were healthy and all that. And I have a parent who's severely handicapped also, by the way, left, lost her inner monologue. So on one hand, it was a deficit because she was paralyzed on her left side. The other side of it is she's, she was never funny, really funny before she became hilarious like everything out of her mouth, you know, was, was crazy and funny. And she just said whatever was on her mind. So it was really, it was really fun, but it was, it was an opportunity for me to, to have to grow up and deal with an elderly, sick, you know, handicapped parent uh, with a woman with a disability is more uh, official way to say it. But uh, that was kind of a step in, 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 uh, in in my growth uh, dealing with that. And I think I handled that really well. I think my, my, my father and even my sister would agree. Like I really stepped up and took care of her and learned how to take care of somebody and, and take things a little more serious. But in 96, I had a very serious girlfriend. She had just moved in and I had a friend who was a a sophisticated pilot who did a flight instructor and all that. 
flew up to Eagle River, Wisconsin. And uh, I was in a sales job at the time, uh, you know, doing some basic level sales stuff. And it was me and my girlfriend, him and his fiance and another couple guys flew up there, had like the best two days of our lives. I mean, jet skiing, water skiing, just, you know, we're romantic. I mean, it was the whole package. And coming back, we flew out at night and uh, I was on a plane that this pilot had very little experience in, but, you know, again, flight instructor, pretty sophisticated pilot. And we lost our engine um, coming back, you know, that sputtering noise that's that you never want to hear, right? When you're mm -hmm. 5,000 5, feet in the air, you never want to hear anything like a sputtering noise. That's like the sound that, you know, your heart just sinks into your stomach. Well, that happened. But what I didn't know about planes, small planes, is that the uh, fuel is in the, in the, in the, in the, they've got multiple tanks and the fuel is in the wings and the guy switched the tanks and sure enough, the engine kicked back on full gear and boom, but we're going, I look over my left and my right. I'm like, holy mackerel. That was, you know, that was a bit scary, but okay. Keep moving on. And we go another 10 minutes and then it happens again. And then my heart sunk into my stomach and it never really left. It was just a pit. And, you know, people have different roles under stress. And I think my role was being, you know, I don't know if this is the, just the person I am or whatever, was to try to keep everybody calm and look, we've got an experienced pilot. We're going to, you know, this, we're going to be okay. Everything's fine. Well, then it starts raining. So now it's, it's, it's pitch black. It's raining. Our engine's sputtering. And in my, in my mind, I'm freaking out, but to everyone on the plane, I was calm and just trying to keep everything, especially my girlfriend. I was like, you know, this is the woman that of my dreams. She had just moved in with me. I was almost hundred percent certain we were going to get married. And the pilot somehow figures out how to, he's going to land this thing. And he kind of, you know, you don't go down like a lawn dart. You go down very kind of slowly because, yeah. because you can float and kind of sail on the air. So he finally gets to a place where he sees a street in a, in a, a suburban rural area in a, a town called Crystal Lake, which is just outside of Chicago. And again, about, I don't know, 30 minutes short of our, of our destination. And he carves out a huge banking turn and he gets down, down, you know, 50 feet from the ground. I'm looking out the window and I'm like, holy crap, he's actually going to pull this off. He's going to do it. He's going to land this goddamn plane. And we get down to the ground level and I'm still looking out the window. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And then he overshot it because he didn't have the power and he clipped the wing on the ground on the curb and it immediately shot the plane upside down into a driveway loaded with cars and a garage with cars and into a house, basically kind of flipped us off the street and into a house loaded with people, by the way, they were celebrating someone's 21st birthday and there was actually a baby sleeping on the second floor. Oh my God. So this could have been one of those situations where we all died. And by the way, the plane blows up, kills everyone in the house. I mean, it could have been 20, 30, 40 people dead. Okay. So the plane is upside down, rips in half, and I'm knocked unconscious immediately. Okay. I wake up in, it's just a disaster. It's like, um, like out of, out of a movie scene, in fact, when I think about everything that happens, I actually have to, I see it like I'm watching a movie and I looked it up. It's called disassociation or something where you can't actually see it the same way because it's so traumatic. Yeah. It's like you your brain's to, defense mechanism. It's a brain defense mechanism. Exactly. And so I, I, I see this whole thing happening like I'm watching a movie because that's how I can actually handle it and deal with it. But, um, 
uh, they, they, there was only one guy out of six in the plane that didn't get hurt. He was, he was, his, his seat didn't detach all of our seats detached. So a, an off-duty firefighter, Sten Johnson heard us coming down. He immediately called on his private radio to get, and there were fire trucks and, and, and ambulances and everything there within minutes. I mean, really fast. And the scariest part for me wasn't, I was in shock and I'll tell you about my injuries in a minute, but, but it was the fact that my girlfriend's leg was next to me and, and I was trying to like call her name and she couldn't like respond. Okay. turns out she had a traumatic brain injury, broken back, broken legs, broken arm, bad, 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 bad. No one died, but bad. I also was in bad shape. My left, left arm and left leg were broken and dislocated over my body. Oh my gosh. Okay. My right arm was crushed. My ribs were smashed. My knee torn meniscus. So I'm kind of calling her name out. She's not responding. And eventually they got to get me out of this fuselage. And that was probably the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. Even though I had been in shock, I snapped out of that. As soon as they tried to lift me and move me with a broken and dislocated arm and leg, really brutal. Like, like I can't even, there's only like one or two times in my life. I've even come close to that kind of pain. And they got me in the ambulance. I was screaming my girlfriend's name. They get me out and they had to chopper her to Freighter Hospital, which is in Milwaukee, because she was so badly damaged. She was in a coma mm-hmm. for two weeks and came out of it. But with a traumatic brain injury, there's a whole backstory after story that goes on for years with her situation. But to focus on mine, I was essentially that the fallout was that I was in a wheelchair for months unable to use my arms because not only was my left arm broken, but my right arm had been smashed. So I was in a wheelchair with no arms. And I will tell anyone that's listening, that's one of the worst experiences you'll ever have is not having use of your arms. To not be able to feed yourself, to not be able to bathe, go to the bathroom yourself is brutal. I mean, even just scratching your face. I remember um, my father got me like a, uh, a back scratcher and so I was like, I, I could move my wrist on my right arm a little bit or whatever. And so or my left arm. So I was like scratching my face with a, and I think I poked my eye a few times with this back scratcher. It was like a, a wooden monkey's arm or something. It was horrible. But uh, the long and the short is just kind of take this to, you know, there's a much longer version of this story, but um, we ran out of gas. I mean, that was the ultimate this thing that was, that was figured out later on was that I think there was like I don't know, 50, 60 ounces of gas left in the planes. We ran out of gas. And that's the worst thing that you ever want to have happen to you on an airplane is, is to run out of gas. And yeah. I think uh, they, they concluded it was mostly pilot error. And of course the pilot to this day, you know, re- rejects that, you know, across the board. It was a, it was a plane malfunction. It wasn't pilot error, even though, you know, evidence is that, you know, there was no, no gas. In the, in the one flying lesson I've ever taken in my life, because I, I did take one because I used to, I wanted to be a pilot. Yeah. Um, I, I remember doing a, a pre-flight check with the instructor and he said, don't ever trust the fuel gauge in the plane. And he yeah. showed me how to, how to check the fuel level yeah. um, in, in each of the wings. Yeah. Um, and I, that, that's one thing I've never forgotten, but I mean, if, if I'm wondering though, I mean, if, if it weren't, running out of gas and you crash, I mean, you, that could have exploded because of the fuel that was left in the tanks. I mean, you're probably lucky yeah. that there was no gas in when you came. When but, you uh, came but honestly, if there had been gas, we would have made it to our destination without, Fair enough. without fail. So I think, Fair enough. but then the other weird sort of surreal thing is like my life took 
such a dramatic turn on so many levels, surviving that, having that happen, surviving. My life is so very different, whether it's the wife and son that I have is different than if I had married this other girl that I was in the plane with. I stayed with her for two years after hoping that she would recover. And I was trying to be that supportive boyfriend. But quite frankly, she hit a plateau as, as people do with brain injuries. And here's the, the wildest part. Here's my girlfriend with a traumatic brain injury. And then my mom has brain damage from her stroke. And so I'm dealing yeah. with two, the two women in my life, both with difficult situations. Now, do you want me to bring this full circle around my mom? Ab absolutely. Something, yeah. something funny. All right. So remember, I mentioned my mom had no, no inner monologue. Okay. She forces my father at 10 o'clock at night or 1030 at night when they get the call that their son had been in a plane crash to drive from Highland Park, Illinois to uh, McHenry, which is like a 45 minute hour drive or whatever. And my mom isn't the easiest to like, we got to get her in the van, get her ready, get her in the van, you know, handicap accessible van and get her out there. So she's fighting tooth and nail to go because it's her son who's been in this accident. So they show up not far after I had been like brought to the hospital and sedated. So the timing was such that, you know, they were kind of relocating my arm and my leg at the time my mom was there and someone had offered my mom coffee. And I'm so, so I'm on one side of a curtain getting put to get put, put back together, like a, like a, like a puzzle. My mom and dad are on the other side of the curtain. My mom has coffee. That's too hot. And she's yelling at all the nurses that the coffee's too hot. And how can this coffee be so hot? And why would they give her such hot coffee? And eventually she, <laughs> you hear me from the other side of the curtain going, mom, I'm dying over here. Shut your effing mouth. And this, you know, it was just a whole scene of my mom bitching about coffee, which was the least of the worries in the world with her son on the other side of this curtain going through, you know, going through a relocation of an arm and a leg. So anyway, I don't know how funny that is, but I thought it, at the time it, it was, I thought it was, I did at the time I didn't think it was funny. I was angry, but later on, I thought it was kind of funny that here I looking am, looking back, you know. Yeah, looking back, and here's my mother, you know, complaining about her freaking coffee. Yeah, I mean, that could have been her way of, you know, the brain has this way of kind of, you know, yeah. suppressing, you know, that could have been a Dealing defense mechanism on her. I mean, I mean, I'm an expert in defense mechanisms. I use them all the time. Um, <laughs> denial is my favorite. I don't know. There you go. Um, well, how did it impact your life kind of going forward? Um, you know, just having going through that experience. And, and as you're talking about this, I'm hearing um, you know, uh, that, that Tim McGraw song lived like you were dying in my head. So like what, what happens next? There's just a tremendous amount of, of, of time to think and reflect and to come up with the realization that, um, as much as I want to have fun and, and I want to enjoy my life, there's things that I need to accomplish. And I think at 26 years old, I was on a decent path, but maybe not on the path that I needed to be on. And when you have that second chance where there's really no reason I should be alive, I mean, there really isn't. And the fact that I was put back together, the fact that I survived, the fact that I um, have an opportunity to uh, make some decisions, better decisions about how I'm going to treat, not that I treated people badly, but how I want to live my life and how I want to leave, um, what I want to leave behind when I'm gone. And I think that's something that people that survive cancer, plane crash, near-death auto, you know, I was talking to a woman the other day, it was in a train crash, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's a shame that it takes some of, some of that to get us on the right path. But I think, you know, that it happened to me for a reason that I needed to, I needed to get serious about how I was going to uh, take care of things and in particular my career and how I was going to make my career matter. And that in selling, selling and sales was my career like your father's. And 
Um, I could have just sold, you know, whatever advertising or websites or whatever. And I would have made a nice living and I would have had a fine life, but where I ended up going with it and where I am now is a whole other level of, of leaving a mark of, of helping people to sell more. I'm a, I'm a sales coach, you know, by trade. And so now I'm helping people build businesses and live their own better lives, pay for their kids' colleges and all the things that relate to it. And that's, that's a whole different journey that I I'm on now that I am just so blessed that I get to, I get to do. Well, what drew you to a career in sales in the first place? You know, I actually started selling, uh, and this is for people our age and older, not younger. Uh, do you remember Kinney shoes? Oh yeah. Kinney's the great American shoe store. It doesn't, it's not yeah. around anymore, but I got a job working at Kinney's part-time and I was selling shoes and I was selling accessories, socks and purses. And I was competing against other part-time salespeople at other stores. And I was making commission. And by the way, the commission was horrible. It was like, pennies. I mean, if you sold a $35 pair of shoes, your commission was 1%. Yeah. It's horrible, right? So, you know, and then 5% on, on accessories. So I focused, everyone walked out of the store with a purse, with socks, with non-slip pads for their dress shoes, whatever. I mean, that was, and I enjoyed learning about sales, learning about competing against others, making commissions, seeing if I, I started getting real competitive with myself and with others. And I just found that interesting. And I ended up in a bunch of sales jobs and then right out of college, boom, right back into sales and kind of then moving up the food chain of sales jobs. Uh, and I ended up selling franchises, which is a very high level, high ticket sales job. I mean, you're now taking somebody and putting them into a business. And I had to oversee about 50 businesses that were in existence. So I kind of had multiple jobs selling businesses and also supporting existing business owners. And that kind of was like a big step up in not only the suit, the sales food chain, but also now being an advisor to business owners, not just selling stuff or selling a thing or a service. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about selling Kinney's, uh, Kinney's shoes. I'm thinking like, you're, you're like a Al Bundy from uh, Mary. Was Al Bundy. He, so that, yeah, he was a shoe salesman. That's uh, <laughs> that was, you know, you should have a picture of Ed O'Neill instead of Michael Jordan's jersey. Yeah. On the back of your that's wall. a good, good point. I'm gonna have to bring that, bring that up. Um, but so you eventually kind of get to like a very high level in, in sales. Um, and you kind of transfer from being, you know, just somebody who's making deals to somebody who's having an advisory capacity, almost coaching other people as well. So when does coaching come into your repertoire? So I changed jobs and I started working for a, a gentleman who was out of uh, um, Kona, Hawaii. Uh, and he tells me, look, if you're going to come work for me, kid, and I wasn't a kid, but I was to him, uh, you know, you need to meet my coach. And um, I said, what, what, what the hell is that? He goes, I have a sales coach. I go, you have a sales coach. I don't even know what that means. Well, that's a coach that helps me make more money, helps me sales. He says, I was selling about 10 franchises a year. Now I sell between 30 and 40 myself. Now that's insane to sell that many businesses in a year. Doesn't make sense. And he says, and I owe it all to this coach. I said, okay, so, you know, all right, I'll meet him. I meet this guy and I start telling him about myself and I tell him about my processes. I tell him about what I do and how I've done things. He goes, Steve, you're doing it all wrong. He says, you're wasting time. You're not efficient. You're this. I was like, what the hell? I'm, I'm a top player. What are you talking about? I always make my six figures. I always do well. And I just realized that, that, you know, I had a bunch of things that I, I had never really worked with a coach. I'd never, I'd really kind of, there's a saying, uh, you know, do you have 10 years of sales experience or do you have one year of sales experience 10 times? 
And I think I was more on the ladder. Like mm-hmm. I had just been, I just have a good personality and people like me and, you know, selling in the nineties wasn't that hard compared to today. I mean, today's a whole other deal. So um, I ended up hiring this coach and within six months, I had made more money in six months than I had in my best year mm-hmm. in, in selling businesses. Okay. Or any, 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 any sales job I'd ever had. So I get to the point where I go, I go, and I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I go, I, I go to this guy, Keith, I go, Keith, just out of curiosity, how do I do what you do? And he says, well, you pay me a lot of money and I'll show you. <laughs> so I had to resign from my, my job that I had only been doing for six months. And I decided to hire this guy to basically teach me how to do what he does. And I'm a pretty quick study. And I had also been doing it for six months. So what I was doing and what he had taught me, um, I now was going to do and bring on. And so I started, you know, my own business in 2004, basically teaching, you know, teaching sales. So I was going at the local chambers. I was going to local BNI, the local networking groups. And, um, and I started and I just, I just took off fast. I took off fast. Yeah. And, uh, and it just, I just was, I was loving what I was doing. My clients were getting results. And uh, there's another piece of this. I don't know how far you want me to go, but it, it, as deep as you want. All right. So in 2008, when the recession hit, I, I got a call from a, a client of mine who says, Hey, I've got an attorney. His phone has stopped ringing. The recessions hit him hard. Do you think you could help him? I said, yeah, sure. Happy to talk with him. Never worked with an attorney. So I meet this guy. I, I do, you know, I, I start to ask him questions, identify where his gaps are. And sure enough, this is a guy who has all the potential in the world, but didn't know anything about sales. Didn't know anything about how to go out and develop business. Well, guess what? I learned that no lawyer does. No lawyer, my father included, my father had plenty of business, but it was because he was good. And he plopped himself down in the 70s, 80s, and 90s around other people that knew he was good, knew he was smart. So lawyers never learn business development or sales, whatever we want to call it, marketing, in law school. They don't learn it at the law firm level. So where do they learn it? They don't. They don't learn it. They figure it out on their own. They wing it. They get lucky. They, they work harder than anybody to, to build a book. And that's why there's so few rainmakers. And those rainmakers are the ones that feed all the other lawyers. Okay. So in 2008, I start working with a lawyer, then two, then three, then a firm, then another. Within a year and a half, 85% of my total business was working with lawyers and law firms. Mm -hmm. And here I am teaching them how to specialize, teaching them how to sell, how to go out and build business. And I said, you know what? I better, I better take a, a taste of my own medicine I'm going to specialize in working with lawyers and law firms, and I'm going to push my chips in. I'm going to change the name of my company, and I'm just going to focus on this. I would rather be a big player in a smaller field than a nobody or a small player in a big field like sales yeah. training. Lots and lots of sales trainers out there. So just a few things with that story. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, number one is, you know, you you had to take that risk early on to, to leave, you know, this very lucrative job. I mean, you mentioned making you know, a full year within six months, um, kind of beating like your best year within within six months. But but that, you know, in order to, to, to kind of follow up on that, you had to kind of walk away from something that seemed to be very lucrative. Um, so back in those, back, just going back into the past for a minute, um, what, what was going on in your personal life at the time? Were you married? Was Did you have a supportive partner making that decision? I mean, I'm, I, I really you won't believe You won't believe this. I am about to get married. Okay. I quit this job. I, um, we sell our homes. We buy a home. We're getting married, like everything within six months of that decision. And my, my, 
my uh, fiance at the time, Lisa, now wife, is a teacher. She's very risk averse. She's like, not me. Now I'm not like a big risk taker, although, you know, I have taken risks. I really felt so strongly and so passionate about this being a risk, but, but knowing that I was confident that with the sales model that I was learning from this coach, the success I had doing what I was doing, the background I have in coaching business owners on how to grow their businesses, that I could pull this off. And that, that just, it's just the stars were aligning for me like never before. And, uh, and then, and, and I was willing to take the risk. And the first person I ever sat down with was a, a real, a realtor named Evan. And he was my first client. The second person I sat down with to talk about his business was a printer. He's in the printing business. He became my second client. So I do this, do this, make this decision. I get into this business and I'm bringing home checks from the first meeting, the second meeting, the third meeting, my wife's like, okay, so here's a guy who goes out, meets with people, goes to these networking events, sits down with people, and he's already locking up deals. I'm not too worried. And by the way, she's like totally secure in her teaching job, tenured teacher and everything. So, you know, the risk was there, but it was more her nervousness than mine. Yeah. And the second part, and we already touched on it was um, kind of building a niche for yourself, you know, kind of finding this, you know, group of of people who have, you know, not very good at sales lawyers, um, and then kind of focusing on them. How did that decision impact your life? It simplified things. Um, you know, before that, I had actually, I didn't mention this, but I, I was running a recruiting business. I was running an executive coaching business. I had a, a tech startup, uh, a networking website that I had created and, and been in marketing. I was running a networking association. I mean, I was spinning my wheels doing a ton of things. And I just decided to just drop it, sell it, get rid of it, and just focus, focus, focus. And even since then, I'm, now that I've been doing this for like 14 years, specifically with attorneys, I continue to refine and get more focused. Like, for example, I only have two programs for lawyers. I have a MBA style coaching and training program, and I run peer advisory groups similar to Vistage, uh, which is like a CEO roundtable, but I do that for lawyers. If someone doesn't fit into those two boxes, I don't even work with law firms anymore, only individual attorneys. If someone doesn't fit into those two buckets, that I send them off to other coaches and other people I know that can help them with other stuff. So, I mean, part of, part of specializing and part of running a business is knowing what you like, what you're best at doing and staying focused. That doesn't mean you can't try new things. It doesn't mean you can't test the waters on stuff, but I'm like a feather on the wind. I'm an entrepreneur, like serial, like I want to do this, 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 this. And, and it, it, it always comes back to Steve. What do you love to do? What are you best at doing? What's your superpower? And if you stay with that and you love it and enjoy it and you see results and other people's results, it makes a big difference. Um, something that I heard for a long time is if you do what you love to do, you never work a day in your life. You've heard that? Yep. Sure. Okay. I've changed that. Cause I don't think that's necessarily true. If you take someone who loves cooking and you put them as a chef in a kitchen and they make the same crap every day for 10 years, dealing with the kitchen and all that and the staffing and all that, they're going to hate it in, in five years. Okay. So I changed it to, to do what you love to do for others. So what I love to do is, is selling and I love coaching, but I love to, 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 to teach people what I know so they can go and do that, whether they, they, they build their sell, sales career, or even if they, I even love when I hear one of my clients is now teaching other lawyers at their law firm, 
what I've taught them and they're passing it down and that wisdom down. And I, I kind of get a kick out of that. Got it. Um, let's talk about the book. Um, so I see it right behind you. Um, legal business development uh, isn't rocket science. Um, when did you have the notion to kind of take all of this knowledge that you have and, and put it into a book? And, and were you worried that people would stop calling if, uh, if you gave away all your secrets in the book? Yeah. Well, keep in mind. Well, uh, so, so just to be clear, I mean, this is my fourth book. So okay. I've been writing books since around 2007, 2008. My first book is called Sales Free Selling. I know you'd asked me about that earlier, but what I had learned from this coach, Keith, and, and, and it's just studying the art of sales and the art of business development and how things have changed. I mean, buyers have changed and there's more information out there and more competition. Um, it's never been more challenging to sell. So the sales free selling book and process is all about, it's, it's about not selling anymore. Stop selling, stop pitching, stop trying to convince. The better method is building stronger relationships, asking better questions, listening, qualifying, and being understanding and demonstrating empathy. And the clients that I work with that follow my methodologies, this is what happens at the end of a, of a sales meeting. The, the potential client leans across the desk and says, so how do we get started? That's the closing line. And it isn't, isn't even happening from my clients. It's happening from the buyers. So when, so when we have a better methodology, better, better outcomes occur. So that was my first book. And the interesting thing about that book, by the way, Mike, is it was written as a story. So it's a coach named Scott. It's me. Secret, secret, you know. And then there's three um, clients, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and a sales rep that meet this coach. And this is a great opportunity to learn what the sales free selling methodology is all about. Mm -hmm. The second book is on networking because I'm like been a networking guy and guru for a long time. The third book was The Ambitious Attorney. And then the more recent one is The Legal Business Development Isn't Rocket Science. So I've build, been building content for so many years and, and, uh, and I just love writing articles. I love sharing ideas, telling stories, using analogies fishing with my son all the time. How can I relate that fishing experience that we had on the boat to business development? How can I, you know, take the plane crash and relate that to business development or time management, you know, those kinds of things. And so that's, that's kind of what my writing is all about. And I, I, I know that there's a lot of tips and giveaways. I think that was my dad, the lawyer's first comment to me is you're giving it all away. How are you going to get any business if you're giving it all away? Right. And I was like, you have no clue. This is all starter stuff. I mean, coaching and training and advisory, there's so much that goes into it beyond a book. That's like saying, Hey, I bought a book on the golf and now I'm a, I'm on the pro tour. Is that <laughs> how that works? Fair, fair enough. Not at all. Uh, that never works. Just going back to that first book, you know, you mentioned you kind of told it as a story, you know, versus like maybe a traditional business book. Yeah. How did that notion come to you? Because I think, um, I mean, I, I think we all learn from stories and, and, you know, I was talking to somebody recently who was was writing a biography and she's like, well, I had to write it like I would write a thriller or a mystery to keep people turning the page. Yeah. But what was your what was your inspiration for doing that? So I'm having dinner with my wife and one of my most successful clients at the time, a guy named Steve Hamburg, who uh, was in the data security business and by the way, sold two of his companies and, and now he's retired and running a restaurant for some reason. But uh, he's a, an amazing guy, but he's sitting guy. he goes, look, there's a book that I, I, I read years ago called The Goal. And The Goal is a book on how to run a manufacturing plant. 
but it was written as a story so that someone that needs to understand how to, how operations work at a manufacturing plant could take in the content in a way that's going to resonate more so than a how-to book. Okay. Characters, stories. I mean, there's even getting into the guy's marital relations of the lead character. So like, I mean, really trying to engage you as a reader. And he said, Steve, you really should write a book like that about sales-free selling to engage the reader at another level. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So I immediately went out, bought the book, The Goal, read the book, The Goal, thought it was brilliant. And then I said to myself this, I have no clue how to write a book like this. <laughs> I have never written a story. I've, I mean, a story where there's dialogue, a story where there's conversations, a story that that's written like that. And it was really, really hard. One of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life was to be able to get through that book. And I remember I hired an editor to help me with it. And she kept sending back the chapters. This isn't right. You need to do this. This isn't right. You need to do that. And I was like, oh my God, I got to redo this chapter again. And eventually I got into a flow and it came out fantastic. I mean, the people that read this book really get a flavor for what it's like to work with me. And at the end, I pretend to be a lawyer and go through a full role play of how a sales free selling meeting should be run from a lawyer's perspective. So anyone that's working with me or wants to work with me that reads that can say, holy crap, I wish my meetings went like this and, and, and it were handled like this. They don't go at all like that. And it would really make sense for me to engage Steve because I want to sales free sell the way he's teaching because that's that's a game changer as it relates to how I'm going to build a book of business or build my client base without ever feeling salesy which by the way like a lawyer's worst nightmare is ever that feeling of oh I'm in sales or I have to sell something legal services that terrifies them that they would ever be seen like like yeah I know your father's a sales guy and I think it sounds like you might have been in your past past life or whatever but like that's that's like they never want to be seen that way Right. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's almost like it's a sales is, could be a four letter word to some people, you know, kinda. And by the way, lawyers don't always have the best rap either. Right. I right. mean, oh, absolutely. Chasers yeah. and all that, but even for those guys, like they see sales down here and lawyers up here, which I get because they're like doctors. It's a very noble profession in many ways and, and highly regulated. Right. Um, so I have a few questions uh, for you that I call the hot seat, um, meant to be fun, uh, lighthearted, uh, although sometimes they're a little tricky for some people. Um, okay. but the first one's a softball, which is, uh, Steve, what were, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? You know, growing up in the seventies, we had what five channels. We didn't have a remote control. So people that are listening to this that are younger than, you know, 35 are going, what, um, three's company. Remember, I mean, you know, that Such was a great just show hilarious to me. Um, I loved MASH. I loved, um, you know, it was the whole Saturday night love boat fantasy island combo. Did that on a regular basis. And quite frankly, the super friends, I loved cartoons. Oh, yeah. And you can imagine my father, the lawyer walking in, watching cartoons and being, what are you a baby? You know, I'm, you know, eight, 10, 12 years old. He goes, what are you five? What are you three watching? Meanwhile, by the way, his favorite show, the three stooges. And wow. then, and then later on, Al Bundy, he loved married with children. So <laughs> here's a guy who's telling me I'm a moron and an idiot for watching cartoons, but he loved the three stooges, which nothing's more moronic than that, which by well, the way, is also to, funny. So, uh, so much to unpack there, uh, but first I will share. Um, yeah. My, I have a twin brother. He and I would watch all the Saturday morning cartoons, super friends, personal favorite. 
Um, actually, much better than the Justice League movie that came out a few years ago. There um, you go. But uh, he used to walk in the room, my dad, when when we'd be watching cartoons like G.I. Joe or something. And it'd be like, all this money I spent on your education, because he put us through Catholic school. All this money I spent on your education, and this is what you're watching. Yeah. Well, fast forward to when I have little kids. My kids are 20 now. They're triplets. But when I, when the three of them, you know, were younger, we'd go visit them down in Florida. They would watch Dora the Explorer. Like that was their thing. And my father would sit and just watch Dora the Explorer with them and just get such a kick out of it. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> what about all that money we spent on your education, dad? Um, but you mentioned Love Boat Fantasy Island. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Right. Lo- Love Boat. I mean, to this day, I, I, you know, my listeners are going to be sick of hearing this story, but for some reason, people always bring up Love Boat on the show. Um, I used to play Love Boat as a kid. Like we, that's what we used to do in the neighborhood. Love Boat. Uh, we used to play chips, but chips. Uh, love chips, man. Oh God. We didn't have a lot to choose from. And I'm sure if you watch those shows now, you'd roll your eyes and go like, this is not quality TV. But back then, you know, we had nothing. We had nothing else. So love, for us, it love was boat the is thing full. Love boat is full of me too moments, but they, we didn't call it that <laughs> back then. Cause Dr. Bricker, Dr. Bricker was always chasing after the ladies on the oh, yeah. ship oh, and yeah. uh, he would lock him in his, his office. I'm like, Oh my gosh. I, mean, this, I, start, <laughs> I started rewatching it during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, Oh my God, they could, this is terrible. Um, how about this? Uh, thinking about your favorite playlist of music. Um, what artists would we find on some of your favorite playlists? You know, going back to high school and college, it was stuff like U2 and REM. And I've always loved classic rock. So anything 60s, 70s and 80s rock, you know, is Journey, Van Halen, uh, Foreigner, like all that stuff is on my playlist. And then recently, like the nice thing about about living today and having Pandora is that you you put on uh, music that you like, and then it shows you other music that's similar. So I've picked up on like four, five, six, ten 10 bands, whatever, that I never would have known about, never would have enjoyed or liked had I not had Pandora. And so things like uh, Seawolf and, uh, and bands like, um, um, oh, who's another one that I like? Foster the People and, uh, and, and uh, Future Islands. I mean, these are bands that people could never even conceive of, independent Bands that, that, you know, some of them that, uh, that I just, I now that now I've got, you know, and, and I can pick out the best songs. You don't have to buy an album where, you know, half the songs are terrible. You, you, you get, you just pull into your iTunes, the four five, six that you love, right. and then you've got them on your, on your phone. And then you, you know, you make playlists in your car with them. But. I, I will say this though. And as convenient as that is, there is a lost art to making a mixtape that our kids will never understand. Yeah. They'll never get it. Or they don't spend um, the time. I mean, you, I can, I still like, I made, I was taking a long drive up to Green Bay, Wisconsin to take my son fishing. And I made a playlist for the car that was all like, if you're sleepy, this is the music. And I played it on the way home when my son finally gave up on conversation with me, a teenager. And he just wanted to like put on his AirPods and like be left alone. And I knew that I was a little sleepy, not dangerous sleepy, but, and I just started singing along and tapping my foot and the rest of the ride was, was cake. So, <laughs> Very the, cool. the, you know, the playlist worked out. My biggest win in life was when uh, my daughter and I were going up to, to her college and she put on a playlist and it was called Music My Dad Likes on, oh. uh, on Spotify. And uh, and she got it down. I mean, she she had she had the U2 on there. She had the kinks. She had a, a lot of good stuff. Um, well, you've written a number of books here. Uh, so I'm curious when you're when you're sitting down and you're about to start something to write. Um, how do you feel, what emotions do you experience when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write? 
I mean, I write articles all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm having that moment, you know, ever literally every month. And I'll give what I try to do is I try to draw off of what's going on in my life at the time. So when I mentioned uh, an article on, on fishing and fishing for business, and then, and, you know, don't stay in the same place if things aren't working or changing up your bait, right? And that might be changing up how you approach the market or how you, your sales approach or whatever. And so like this morning, I just took a, I took a blank word doc out and I had a conversation with one of my clients yesterday, who's got more business than he can handle. Okay. But it's causing him severe stress. His blood pressure's high. He has a heart condition and, and, and litigation. He's trying to keep the litigation to a minimum. It's high stress. And I started giving him advice and he, it was advice that he had just had never considered, never considered the thing. And I have all this experience, right? So I started advising him. And then when I sat down with that blank sheet, even this morning, I just, I wrote down his name at the top. I said, advice I gave Ryan. And I wrote down like four or five bullet points. Well, guess what? That's going to be the start in the middle and the end of my article, talking to a client named Ryan. Here's his problem. Here's the things I, I advised him on. And I'll expand on, on it from there. So things evolve based on my day-to-day -day interaction in life, dealing with clients, dealing with my son, dealing with fishing, dealing with, I play a sport called platform tennis, which mm -hmm. is big in the Midwest and the East Coast. And, and, you know, lessons from platform tennis that you can use to grow your book of business as a lawyer. So all these things kind of relate. And those are the most fun articles I write. Same thing for, for books. Um, the last book, by the way, this one, it relates to 51 chapters of my articles from the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin all in one book. So this book, while it seems like it was a lot of work and it was, it actually was a repurposed from repurposed from all the articles I'd written for the last six plus years from the daily law bulletin. I'm not publicizing that, you know, around the way, who cares? It's my yeah. best ideas in one place. Do you want it or not? You know? Yeah. So, so that one wasn't like I had to sit down from page one and write it the whole thing. It was written over a period of time. So th thinking back to that first book, what's, what's the lesson about um, writing a book or publishing a book that you learned the hard way, kind of the first time out of the gate? Yeah, I think probably the, the, the lesson learned is writing a book is one thing, but marketing a book and getting traction behind it. Okay, I caught you there. Uh, uh, that's a whole other thing. So I think what I try to do is, is make mistakes and then try my best to not make the same mistakes again. So every book that I've written, I've gotten better at public, publicizing it, doing book signings, book launches. This last book, by the way, I hired a consultant who was able to get me international bestseller status in four countries. That was something I hadn't been able to achieve or do with past books. So again, continuing to find good people to bring in to help me with publicity, to help me with marketing the book so that it isn't just sitting on Amazon with, with you know, uh, spider webs, you know, uh, falling all over it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's one of the things, one of the insights I've definitely gleaned by, by doing this and talking to so many authors is, um, yeah, writing, writing the book is, is, can be challenging, but it's the fun part. Uh, marketing it is, is more challenging. Publicizing it is more challenging. And, and like the first time out of the gate, you know, a lot of young authors think that the writing is the hard part, but in fact, it's the, Hey, if you want to sell this beyond friends and family, you know, if you're, if you're more of the independently published versus having a big publisher behind you. And even if you do have a big publisher behind you, most of the marketing, you know, you're doing yourself. Um, that's the, that's the real tricky part. 
Um, and it's a different side of the brain, you know, especially for fiction authors who are a little bit more artistic, uh, not really, maybe not be as, as, as business minded, kind of taking over the business reins. Um, and I think you find, you know, while writing is solitary, you need a team of people to help you kind of get the word out. And if you don't have that, um, you know, your book is, is likely more likely than not going to sell. I mean, here's the other thing too. I'm selling books, but in a very small niche. I mean, not mm-hmm. only are, are there a limited number of lawyers in the world, in the country compared to if it was a book like a John Grisham or, or like a book that was, you know, good to great or some business book that's very universally, you know, reviewed. I'm, I'm dealing with a very niche, a very niche space. So um, the expectations of book sales that I'm going to become a millionaire and, and pay for my son's college for, through a book or books isn't realistic, but the value of that content, the value of being an author, the value of, of being able to hand out that book as a business card um, is so much better and bigger and broader than, than here's my actual business card that you know, shows I've done nothing and written nothing or whatever. So it, it really makes a big difference in how you're perceived in the marketplace and how you build your credibility. So if, if there is money involved, but it's, that's not my driving force. It's the ability to educate People are not going to hire me to work with them as their coach. Fine. Read my book, listen to my podcast, get on my social media, go to my YouTube channel. I have a way of impacting the industry and a legacy beyond the actual people that I work with on a yearly basis. And that to me is as meaningful as anything. All right. I got two more for you. Uh, Second to last, uh, best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring salesperson. Someone comes to you and says, Steve, I want to be a salesperson. I want to be successful. What's the best piece of advice you could give them? Don't wing it. Don't figure it out on your own. There's too much good content. There's too many good coaches. There's too many good advisors, mentors. I don't care where it comes from. But if I'm a chef and I decide that I'm going to make lasagna and I'm not going to follow a recipe and I'm not going to follow an order of how I'm going to put things in the pan, it's not going to come out. And it's going to take a lot of trial and error to get to where you want. So what I said earlier, do you have 10 years of sales experience or one year of sales experience 10 times? You need to keep evolving and improving. Start off with a good coach, a good mentor, a good advisor, and never stop being a student of that art. If you're a chef, you're not going to stop learning. You want to keep getting better and trying new things. If you're a musician, you need to keep trying to get better. Try different instruments. Try writing your own music keep getting better and learning from people that know more than you. And that's really the key to success in really anything you want to accomplish. And last up, uh, if you could write a letter to your younger self and mail it, uh, and they could open it up, you know, however long ago in the, in the past, um, what's some advice you would give your younger self? You know, I think I had an opportunity to listen to my father and now I've got a teenager who doesn't listen to a goddamn thing. I say, pardon my French. Um, you know, and I have all this advice and all this, this, these things that would help make his life better. He's, he's got to get to an age and to an, a point in appreciation where he's willing to take in that advice. I, I, I really wasn't, I was the same way. Now things turned out fine, right? <laughs> Eventually you work it out and things end up okay. But, um, I think if I, if I, if I could have gotten more serious about my schoolwork, if I had gotten more serious and, and I know I have ADHD and I know everyone does to some degree and, 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 but I, you know, I, I really struggled in school and I struggled to study and I struggled with tests and uh, I really never got the right help. Um, and I think when I did in high school in my junior year, I got help and I ended up 
kicking ass my junior senior year and actually getting into college, which I probably wouldn't have gotten into any college had I not gotten my act together. But right. I think if I, if I could have figured that out earlier, um, I mean, I was having meetings in junior high with all of my teachers and the principal and my parents. And again, right. they didn't know why they just thought I was stupid and lazy. So um, I think I, I, if I had just, if I had just either sought out help or if I had just gotten more serious about trying to figure out why I wasn't getting ahead sooner, that probably would have been what I would tell my younger self. Okay. Um, well, you've got a lot of advice. Uh, you've, you've got a lot of wisdom you've, you've aggregated in your, in your books. Where can people go and buy these books of which we have been speaking about? Yeah. If you type in Steve Fretzen, F-R-E-T-Z-I-N on Amazon, it'll pull up all my books. Um, you know, some of them are read straight through. Some of them might be, Hey, you could just go through the table of contents, find the stuff that's, that's, that's relevant to you now or today. And, and you can get some answers quickly, but if you're a lawyer that is looking for uh, great resources, uh, whether it's books, videos, podcasts, uh, or you're looking to get actual coaching to take your law practice next level, my website's a pretty good resource. That's just fretson.com. Um, and that's a good place to go or check out my podcast, be that lawyer on all major uh, podcast platforms. And uh, I interview like you, you know, great minds, smarter people than me uh, and uh, people that have expertise in every area of, 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 of how to build a law practice, how to have balance in your life, how to um, you know, make sure that you're, you're, you're not making mistakes like uh, we have and, and just keep getting smarter and better. So, all right. Yeah. A lot of good resources there. Uh, Steve, this has been a fun conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Really appreciate it.